Hello, beautiful people. I'm Callie, and this is season two of Girl Uninspired, the podcast where we talk about channeling our beings, finding our niche, and what we do about inspiration. Welcome to episode one. I'm here with Dr. Worsencroft. You can go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm John Worsencroft. Um, I'm a professor of history in the uh, department here at Louisiana Tech. Um, my pronouns are he, him, um, and my sign is Capricorn. Um, can you go ahead and describe your job? Sure. So, um, like I said, I'm a, I'm a professor in history. Um, uh, I went to graduate school in, or you want to describe it like me physically? Um, uh, no, your job. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I went to graduate school in uh, Philadelphia at a school called Temple University, and I've been teaching here at Louisiana Tech for almost two and a half years now. Um, so why I wanted to interview you is because you teach in a manner that pulls like current events in. You teach in a very, um, what's the word you use? Col- collaborative? Yes. Okay. Uh, collaborative style. And it makes the classroom very interesting. And so I was wondering, um, can you describe what effect that that has on your classroom? Yeah. I mean, uh, when I went to college, uh, I had a very different experience. And it wasn't necessarily a a worse experience or a better experience like that. But my college classrooms were much more kind of traditional in the sense that the professor would lecture and I would take notes and things like that. But as I went through graduate school and as I started to like think about and learn about how to be a kind of effective uh, professor or instructor, I started to read um, a lot of literature about pedagogy or the kind of study of, of, um, of teaching. And one of the things that I was struck by was how ineffective that kind of older method is of you know, me being the expert and professing my knowledge to you through a lecture and you being the student kind of passively taking that information in through note taking. What I found in the literature, and this is not just like historians talking, but this is like psychologists and people who kind of study how people learn stuff, cognition and things like that, um, that the old method, people don't actually remember a lot of the stuff that we're trying to teach them. And that if that's the case, then what are we doing? And for me, the answer to that question was, is that I'd be much more interested in teaching students skills to help them to understand how to navigate their world. And so that's kind of the the approach that I take to all of my classes, including the ones that you've had with me, which are kind of upper division, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, seminar style classes. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this class, by the way. But um, so, Speaking of your style, like, it's not lecture equals test. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually uh, collaborative, and we work on a lot of projects. Do you want to describe that? Yeah, absolutely. So like, so if, 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 as I said, that old model doesn't work, and this model that I'm trying is much more um, trying to teach people, um, you know, how to do what I call historical thinking skills that kind of help them to understand their world, then how do I do that? And one of the best ways to do that is to actually involve students in that process. So for, you know, you'll remember um, uh, last year that you took my women's history class. And one of the things that we did was it was, it was a group project that, that involved all of the students in 
the research process, which is something that I do professionally, like in my in my other roles as a professor and as a, as a research scholar. Um, but you know, if, if it was a kind of traditional class, a traditional women's history class, it would be much more, I'm the, I'm the professor, I did this research, and now I'm going to kind of present it all to you over the course of a quarter. And I wanted to flip that and just involve students in the process. Mm -hmm. So, A lot of professors that I've talked to today are concerned about that style and how it's ineffective and uh, dismantling that in a sense. Do you think there's a reason? So you're you're asking me that there's a critique of that the way that I do things, or there's a critique of the um, quote unquote normal way of teaching where you have the lecture and then the students listening. Oh, okay. So I mean, I think there still are a lot of people that still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I'm not trying to to um, uh, to place a value judgment on. Like I said, I I went to college and had a very kind of traditional. Um, uh, education in the sense Mm -hmm. that there was a professor and I learned from them through taking notes and tests um and obviously that that did that did worked well for me in the sense that I went to graduate school and I felt like I had a foundation of knowledge and things like that but I think that the one thing that the people who still do that model don't or haven't grappled with is that actually all of the information that they have in their heads you all have on your phones or you know through the internet and one of the things that that old model doesn't do is teach you all how to access that information mm-hmm. other than through listening to me talk. So again, I'm not trying to say that my way's better or that their way is 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 antiquated or worse. And I probably shouldn't use that word traditional because it does kind of uh, connote that. But what I'm trying to say is that I just I've just chosen a different path. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes sir. Um so in recent events There's been a lot of concern about our university's ability to um, protect the professor and, like, their right to um, teach how they teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you finding that that is affecting how you teach? Uh, So the the recent events that that happened on campus with the the firing of of an adjunct professor, um, yes, it it really did have an impact. In fact, this morning I had a really hard time um, going into my class today, my, my morning class, um, because I teach the same class that this adjunct professor, uh, uh, teaches history 102. And frankly, I use a lot of the same methods that this professor uses. And I cover a lot of the same topics that this professor covered that got him into trouble. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, and you're aware of this, that it sounds to me like the, the university has realized that they made a mistake. Um, and I think that, that they've, they've realized that because one of the foundational pr- principles of what we do in academia, whether you're doing it, whether you're teaching in the traditional way or whether you're teaching in the way that I do things, is that we believe in something called academic freedom. That um, because I am trained as a historian, and I'm, you know, because I have that degree, it says that I'm an expert in this, in my field, right? And nobody else should be able to tell me in my classroom mm-hmm. what I should, what I can and can't teach. Because um, with the exception of a, of a kind of duly appointed committee of my peers, people who have the same training, it doesn't make much sense that somebody who doesn't have my background 
-hmm. and my expertise to be able to step into my classroom and say you can or can't teach those kinds of things. Especially because they're outside of the university. That's right. So in this case, it was it was it was parents who mm -hmm. were frustrated that what the professor who was fired or who's now been reinstated, but who was initially fired the things that he was teaching was making their children feel, or their, their, their adult children feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I tell my students at the beginning, my, in my big world history class at the very beginning, that some of the things that I'm going to talk about are going to make you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. They're designed that way, right? Mm -hmm. My job, one of my jobs is to, not to teach them what to think, right? And mm -hmm. not to change their mind even but to get them to challenge their assumptions and the things that they believe and that they believe their whole entire lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because location also affects how um, subjects are taught. Like in a lot of my history classes, because I personally grew up uh, not in Ruston, but in yeah. Louisiana. Okay. Um, and a lot of my history classes kind of glaze over all of the uh, tragedies of history and That's like right. the mistakes that have been made well it, it's like I, it's like I taught you and like I, I try to teach my students that history is a story right mm -hmm. and when students hear the same story over and over again like you heard when you were growing up and in, in, in growing up in the Louisiana school system there's a reason why that story is told mm -hmm. right? and why other stories are not told and one of the things that I like to do in my class is to really upset that, and to yeah, and to, yeah, right. So to, and to teach students that there is a, that, that this is constructed, and that actually you guys can have a hand in in constructing that narrative. Mm -hmm. But it's all a choice. So, um, you know, uh, if, if you read a textbook when you were in grade school or high school or whatever that that kind of glossed over, say, slavery or mm -hmm. glossed over. Um, um, issues the the kinds of issues of Jim Crow and race during the during the 20th century in the United States. There's a reason for that, mm -hmm. right? People made choices, and that's essentially what this professor was initially fired for was speaking on those topics of race, mm -hmm. racism. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're, you're but you're... like the military and how it uh, was affected through through the world. That's right. And it was a parent that went to someone higher up and upset the balance and got them. That's got right. Them That's exactly how it happened. And it's important to underscore, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but just for your listeners, is that that's not normal. Mm -hmm. um, there are professors that get fired. Um, and sometimes they get fired for, for, uh, for good reasons and oftentimes they get fired for bad reasons, mm -hmm. but usually they have a process and this yeah. was kind of outside of a process. I mean, speaking of a process, when I was in your women's history class last year, mm -hmm. there was a professor who was known for, um, sexual harassment and yeah. it took this professor two years to be fired. Yeah. Again, I think it. Um, I think you you raise a really valid point, and and for people who have been paying attention to what's going on, this most recent event with the with the firing of the professor in my department, that's the con the the story that you're telling is the context, right? That sometimes we have rules and sometimes we don't have rules, mm -hmm. and that's the problem with this arbitrariness. And I think that like going forward, one thing that this one thing that this university will have to grapple with is creating transparent and predictable policies that people mm -hmm. can follow um, because right now we don't really have those and mm -hmm. it shows like that one professor can 
sexually harass women uh, and stick around for years. And this person, teaching whatever what most historians would say is good history, gets fired immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all while it is um, a a terrible situation. I think what I admire that has come from it is that it has really shown the students that they have power mm-hmm. um, in organizing and kind of revolutionizing the campus and in the sense of what we're doing in the present is going to affect the future now. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you've put it beautifully in the sense that um, that's the thing that I've been most hardened by. I wasn't surprised because I knew that you all had this ability in you. Mm -hmm. But I tell my, especially my freshman students in my world history class, I always remind them that freshmen, college freshmen are the most powerful people on campus Mm -hmm. because they have the most powerful voice because if they don't want to come back next year, then Louisiana Tech is in trouble, right? Yeah. And so that they have a lot of power, not just freshmen, but students in general have a lot of power in in deciding how things are run on this campus. Mm -hmm. And usually the freshman is the largest body on campus. That's right. Um, And it also, in a a university system that's really worried about rankings, um, freshman retention rates are really important for um, how those rankings play out. So if you have a really poor retention rate because you have a poor experience for your students, that shows up in the rankings and your rankings will go down. Mm. So, Are you finding that you have limitations in your classroom? I haven't until until this week. I mean, really, honestly, Kelly, the, the one great thing about Louisiana Tech, at least from my experience, is that I get to teach whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And while most institutions have a... a, a a, a, a kind of standard of academic freedom that whatever I do in my class it's up to me mm-hmm. most institutions will tell you you have to teach these classes or this class and with Louisiana Tech for the most part I get to teach whatever I want and it's been really rewarding because I get to teach really cool classes mm-hmm. like history of food or the women's history class that I, that I, that I taught um, those are just all because I wanted to teach them mm-hmm. and I get to make that decision and I think one of the things that I'm worried about is that in the past I've had um, teachers who are vocal about like being honest about the truth okay. and and history um, and also. Well, I want to. I want to. But just to kind of. I mean, I'll let you finish that thought, but I want to push back one on one thing that I'm I'm less interested in the truth, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying that what you read in those textbooks when you were growing up were lies, mm-hmm. right? And what I'm teaching you is the truth. But what mm-hmm. I am saying is that there are competing narratives, right? Yeah. And while all of those narratives can be based in fact, the facts that we choose to emphasize is what's really important, right? Yeah. Okay, okay so. I think I think what I mean to say is that the the narratives that are being taught that do oppose what we what were previously taught, um there's a difference mm-hmm. and I in the past I've had professors who are very vocal not only about these narratives but also about maybe their personal uh, beliefs also with these narratives not in a way to make the student you know only hear this one side mm-hmm. but introduce them to something new if that yeah. and I I concern that I'm 
like been thinking about is how that's gonna how this event is gonna affect. Well, I think I think that I'm optimistic, mm-hmm. um, and I I can I can at least speak for my myself that I still feel fairly confident that I can teach what I want to teach. But I think this is going to have an effect. I mean, mm-hmm. it has to, right? I mean, we've been told basically that, that there are certain things that we shouldn't teach, otherwise we can get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's the where I get back to that point about academic freedom. It's so important for me to be able to feel like I can safely walk into my classroom and teach according to my to, to what my expertise tells me I should teach. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm optimistic, but I do I do share your concern that this is going to have a chilling effect on, on other faculty members. In another note, um, is this profession what you had originally planned for? Yes, in the sense that I think I, for, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a college professor. But I had no idea what that meant. And mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, and I'm being honest here, I think that if I had known what it meant way back in the day when I was young, I don't know if I would have done it. And that's not to say that I don't like it, because mm-hmm. I really do love it. And you probably know that I I, 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 mm-hmm. I enjoy what I do. I hope it shows. It definitely shows that you enjoy what you do. But there are a lot of things about this profession that I don't like. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know if I knew all the things that I know today that I would have taken the same path. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason that, like, that you wouldn't have taken the same path? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I think that... Uh, the the amount of time that we spend on training um, in graduate school and learning all the stuff that we learn, I don't know if it is if the if the amount of work that you have to do is is worth the reward. Mm-hmm. In the sense that a lot of my friends and colleagues, people I went to graduate school with, don't have jobs, and that's because there's been a a, a sh- the market for uh, PhDs has really shrunk in the past. 10 to 15 years. And so, you know, when a lot of us started graduate school, things were kind of different. And I'm not sure that things are going to go back to the way that they were. So for a lot of my friends, that means they're in a lot of debt. They've now spent years training for this thing that they're, they're, they're probably not going to be able to do. And then frankly, for me personally, and, and I hope that you as, as a native Louisiana don't take this the wrong way, but I in a million years never thought I would be living in, in northern Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that I don't like things about Louisiana, because I really do. There's a lot of great things about this state. But there are pl- other places that I would rather live, and I live very far away from my family and my wife's family as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, I made this choice. I, and I'm happy with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would have done all this stuff if I knew at the very beginning that I was going to go down this road. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, something that, like, I hadn't considered because there there were parts, uh, there were times when I myself also wanted to be a college professor. Yeah. And um, I'm starting to notice that you, there's a luxury in getting to like go where you want to go mm-hmm. especially like also being able to have your family there mm-hmm. um i ha- have another professor uh, and th- their partner uh out- lives in in a completely different state and mm-hmm. i yeah that happens a lot 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's a function of how bad the job market is. That mm-hmm. um, professors don't. I know that there's a there's a kind of there's a belief out there that professors like make a pretty good living. We don't really. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't make a very good living at all, especially given the amount of time we spend in school. Um, and so yeah, the dual dual uh, professor families, people with with uh, two PhDs, um, often do live. Know, just a whole entire states apart um, and only get to see each other on the weekends mm-hmm. um, because that's the only way it'll work um, but yeah I mean again like the, these kinds of things that you don't you don't think about them when you when you're mm-hmm. I want to go to graduate school and that's, it, it is like, like it's all, graduate school is all of those things that you think it is like it's you read books and it's you have these great conversations and all those things are true and I had a lot of fun in graduate school. And I had a really good cohort of friends that I'm still really good friends with today. Mm-hmm. So like I don't I wouldn't I would never change like or trade all of the good stuff, but there was a lot of bad stuff too. Mm-hmm. And the job market makes it really bad. Uh, what's your favorite topic to cover in class? Any topic that and I mean this, any topic that causes students to kind of stop in their tracks mm-hmm. and fundamentally rethink things. Again, not to try to tell them what to think, but to, to kind of force them to challenge their assumptions. Mm-hmm. So for me, that means teaching courses that deal with gender, sexuality, and women, women's history. Mm-hmm. And that's because you know most of the history that they've learned, and even kind of the way they think about themselves, um, think about those categories as kind of natural and fixed. And what I like to do with my history classes is show, no, actually these things change over time. Mm-hmm. and um, those things really kind of up. If if you can get to that fundamental level with a student and get them to challenge and to rethink something that they've just kind of assumed their whole entire lives, mm-hmm. that's a powerful thing. Yeah. But I can do that if I'm teaching about the military. I'm a I'm a military historian by train training, right? Or if I'm teaching world history or a class on youth, sex, and gender, which is what we're taking now, mm-hmm. singing or uh, listening to country songs together. Um, I mean, all of those things I love to do, but in all of them, my goal is to do that fundamental thing, which is to kind of force people to rethink things. Mm-hmm. I, so I wasn't in the women's history class for the first two weeks, mm-hmm. um, but I did hear like originally that the students were quite shocked that like you were teaching women's history as a white male, mm-hmm. and that you got some backlash for that. Yeah. Um, well, and I invited it. Yeah, but. So, so as a person who wasn't there, I heard the that there was uh, the chit chat happening and whatnot. Yeah. You want to talk about that? So it, I think it's I think it's really important um, that uh, we acknowledge um, our privilege and uh, acknowledge that we come at things from different perspectives because of those privileges, right? I mean, I am a straight white man, cisgender, right? Uh, which means that I have a lot of kind of authority built into just my being just because of who I am in society, mm-hmm. right? Which means, which is a good thing in a way because I can, do, I can do a lot of things that other people can't. I can teach a course on youth, sex, and gender, which I don't know that other people in this, in this college would be able to get away with. Mm-hmm. Same thing, but the, but, the, but the flip side of that is that I also have to acknowledge that some of the subjects that I teach, I've, I've never experienced. Right, mm-hmm. and I don't, and I, and I don't know how they feel. I don't, I don't know how it feels to be a woman. I don't know how it feels to be a gay man, or a person of color who has to walk in the, in the, in the stories that I'm telling. Right, mm-hmm. and so what I was doing in that class was 
trying to, as much as I could, acknowledge the fact that um, that my personal experiences being a straight white guy who's, you know, it, you know me, I'm, I'm a tall, big person with a beard. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, I, and when I stand in front of a room, people listen to me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to acknowledge that and give people the opportunity to, to push back on me. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you heard probably, that it went well, actually, in the sense that people really did kind of grapple with what does it mean to have a, a white dude, you know, teaching women's history? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I don't have a good answer for that, but um, uh, I'm going to keep doing it as mm-hmm. long as people take my classes. I uh, read a book on, like, queer history in the U.S., mm-hmm. and it was actually a professor uh, who was also a white man, and he was talking about how that affects his uh, his classroom and how initially students don't aren't perceptive to that yeah but as of now like it's it's better to have someone or not better it's to the student's advantage to have a professor with privilege especially for projects like I I know when we were working on the archives Mm -hmm. that um tech projects a the statistics that there's no sexual harassment on campus right and one of the groups was working on um, domestic violence and abuse on Tech's campus, mm-hmm. and they were trying to get statistics for that. And the um, sh- not sheriff, the the chief of police, chief of police for Tech, would not respond to their uh, inquiries about getting in contact with him and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't actually until you went and were able to like confront him. That's right. That they heard back. And that's what I mean by, um, on the one hand, acknowledging the privilege that I do have and understanding that I can't walk in your shoes, let's say, or any of the other women in my class, or certain, certainly not the victims of sexual violence that you all um, uh, researched. But I can use my privilege to make sure that doors get opened, to make sure that you all have the resources that you have and mm-hmm. the protection that you need in order to do your work. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Um, so you talk about how you want your students to be able to, like, open those doors for themselves, to be able to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, what else do you hope your students learn from your class? I hope that they gain empathy, meaning that they understand that, um, that other people have different experiences than them. And to, even though, like, getting back to what we were just talking about a second ago, Mm -hmm. I can never know, say, what your life experience is like in the sense that I can't walk in your shoes. But I can try to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And I can try to have empathy. Um, So that's one thing. And again, the second second thing just gets back to what I said earlier. Um, I really hope that everybody who comes into my classroom walks out at least being challenged to think about things differently. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, most of my students will, will attest that I, I, I've never tried to, to, to tell people how to think, right. Or what to think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have tried to, 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 to help them to develop, develop different strategies for thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think with my experience with like, have the professors that I've had in mm-hmm. the past, I've never really noticed that any of them like try to project their beliefs onto their students that they only believe what they're telling them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that, 
especially in today's environment, I think that academics and professors are hyper aware of um, not tr or trying not to be overly uh, ideological mm -hmm. um, or to push one position over another, but rather to give students the ability to see opposing viewpoints, right? Mm -hmm. And to be challenged. Um, but it doesn't always work. And, you know, frankly, like, if I'm being honest, like, I do have an agenda. There's a reason why I taught a women's history class when I did, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think I told the class this, that um, I was I was listening to the, to the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearings um, the, for the Supreme Court. And I, I, and I was struck by a lot of things. But one of the things I was really struck by was how little people knew about women's history and mm -hmm. how a lot of the things that were brought up during those confirmation hearings that happened to Anita Hill mm -hmm. um, and, and, uh, and her fight with, with uh, Clarence Thomas just 20 years earlier. And so part of it was teaching that class was, was I was mad at what had happened. Mm -hmm. But then also part of it was I wanted to give students on this campus the the background, the knowledge, and the ability to find out more mm -hmm. about things that, that, that they also were mad about. So, yeah, I do have an agenda. I do have beliefs. Mm -hmm. But what I do do in the classroom is try to not hide those or pretend like they don't exist, but to use them in ways that... I think they'd be beneficial for students and that what I'm trying to do is teach them how to think for themselves, mm -hmm. I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, this is the first episode of season two, and for the first episode of season one, I interviewed Cassidy, who was oh, also cool. in uh, the women's history class with us, and as a byproduct of that, she started uh, FIO, it's the first feminist organization on Louisiana Tech's campus. Mm -hmm. um, and so Which is super cool by the way. I know, she's so cool. But so um I so in season two I was trying to focus on like people I admire, uh mentors. Okay. Um, that kind of aspect and you know, how people that I view as quote unquote unsuc or successful, um, have had like influences in their life to like get them where that they are now. Oh, so you're asking, you want to know, like, uh... Like, who or what influences have been a part of your life? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really good question, and I love talking about this. Um, first of all, I've had really important mentors in graduate school, and, and in, in, when I was an, an undergraduate, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a, uh, I remember when I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, or I always, like I said, I always wanted to be a college professor, but I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to study gender and stuff like that when I took a history of sexuality class um, as, a, as an undergraduate. And I met a, a professor named Beth Clement and she teaches at the University of Utah, which is where I went. And I just remember, like, like I said to you, like, I remember in that class thinking that I knew how the world worked. Mm -hmm. And then I went into that class and the things that she taught me about sexuality and gender caused me to fundamentally rethink basic assumptions that I had, that I had made. And I'd never had that experience in college before or anywhere else really. And so at that moment, I, I, I was hooked on this, this, this kind of idea and, and, and it, it led to a kind of lifelong learning in, in this subject. Um, so she was really foundation for me. And she also was 
kind enough um, and saw enough in me to write me a letter of recommendation um, to get me into to a PhD program. So she was foundation for it, and I'm still very good friends with her. I talk with her all the time. Um, when I was an undergraduate, she used to make me do like chores around her house, and she would pay me like money on the side, and and we joke about that all the time. But she's a very kind and warm person, and I and I uh, I owe the world, or I she you know she was she opened doors for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one was my my PhD advisor, whose name is Beth Bailey, um, and she she taught me what it meant to be a scholar. Um, I didn't know what it meant. Like I said, before I was, uh, I didn't really know what graduate school meant or what it, what it meant to be a professor, but Beth Bailey taught me um, that what we do is important and that it requires a level of uh, gravity and seriousness, um, mm-hmm. that what we do actually can help to shape people's lives. And um, she taught me that in a lot of ways, but um, so she was a really big influence for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also like experiences, uh, you know, I tell, in fact, I told my freshman students this today, um, you know, I'm a military historian and the fact that I served in the military, um, fundamentally shapes how I think about these kinds of things. And, um, while to get back to the, the, the question of authority and who can, who can talk about these things, like I'm, I'll never be a woman, a woman and I'll never know what it's like, but I feel like I can teach women's history. Same thing with um, military history. I don't think that you have to have been served in the military, been in combat to study military history, but it is different, right? Mm-hmm. A woman studies uh, women's history different than say I would as a straight white guy. Um, a queer scholar would, would study things differently than, than, than a straight scholar would. All those things make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that experience of serving in the military and, 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 and doing a tour in Iraq um, fundamentally shaped how I think about these kinds of things, mm-hmm. for good or for bad, right? So those are some really big influences. Two people and then and that experience really helped. I don't know if helps the right word, but they certainly put me on the path that I'm on today. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you have a current project that you're working on? Or a next project that you're looking forward to? Yeah, so I've, I've got lots of projects. Um, one of them is, and this is kind of normal for um, um, uh, junior faculty in the history prof- in the in the history field, um, is that I'm taking my dissertation, which is a, a kind of history of military family policies in the Army and the Marine Corps um, in America, uh, and I'm turning that into a book. And that's a long process. It can take a long time. Um, but there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and so I'm working on that right now. But then I'm also working on a couple of articles that are, um, uh, that I would say are, are uh, firmly in the kind of war and society um, genre of history. And then I'm actually trying to start an oral history project um, centering on families and people who have served at Barksdale Air Force Base in northern Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, next quarter I'll be teaching a class on war and society, and one of the things that we're going to be doing is an oral history project as a class. So again, I'm, I'll be putting students in the driver's seat of kind of creating mm-hmm. this stuff, but it'll be for a different topic. I think putting students in the driver's seat, per se, is really interesting and in, uh actually encourages the student to take a lot more responsibility yeah. in learning. 
Yeah, but and it was also really hard, right? I mean, you guys, I remember you guys, there was one point in the quarter where I thought I'd pushed you guys too far, um, or too hard, um, because it's really, I mean, it's, 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 it's challenging to sit in a class and, and listen to a lecture and take notes and do well on a mm-hmm. test. I'm not saying that isn't challenging, but it's a different thing to actually have to create history, right? And find it. Yeah, yeah. and to find all that stuff. And so... Uh, for me as a historian, that's what's exciting, right? Creating history and digging into archives and finding stuff to write about. And so why not share that with students? And I found that like with that class, you you gave students higher expectations for what for what they were expected to do as students, and in turn, we we rose to meet them. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think it made us better as students. I think you're absolutely right. And I noticed that too. I noticed mm-hmm. that at first, everybody kind of had this daunted look on their face. But by the end of it, you guys crushed it. You guys mm-hmm. really did. And, I, and I'm, 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 t- I'm telling you now, a year after it happened, you guys were so surprising in how well you did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that you found and the way that you presented it. It was really cool to see it happen. But yeah, you guys, there, there was times when you guys looked lost like there's no way we can do this i think i think you purposely make you know syllabus and like the first day kind of daunting and so uh, the the vibe that i get is like like this is gonna be really hard so if you can't do it then you might uh want to drop out even though even though i know you mean best for the student no, you're not the you're not the only person that's ever said that to me and and i and i kind of I think about that. Mm-hmm. I do think it's an effective tool, right? It is. To, for me to put my like straight-laced white guy's attitude on and be like, look, you guys need to do this. You're going to be, you know, it, it's going to be real hard and to kind of put my tough guy face on. But mm-hmm. um, I do think it's important to kind of set a standard. But maybe I'm not, I, I, I do think about that because maybe that's not the, that's not the, it's not necessarily the image that I want to project because, as you know, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm actually a very nice person. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a first like ten minutes of class yeah. attitude, and then it's gone. Yeah, exactly. So I, I struggle with that, but I do think it is effective. Mhm. So I think it's 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 something that uh, most science based programs do is that they they present really scary at first so that the people who aren't going to put in the amount of effort mm-hmm. drop the class. Yeah, you're, I think you're right. I think that that's, that's much more uh, common in the, in the sciences. And I guess that I, especially for that class, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you guys to do a lot of work. And mm-hmm. I didn't want people in that class who couldn't do that because mm-hmm. it would have screwed it all up. Yeah. And it ended up being that class full of people who really just wanted to do the work. I know some of you did less than the others, but like, but for the most part, you guys did a really good job of coming together as, as two research teams. Mm-hmm. And coalescing and, and, and putting the work in. It was awesome. Um, my next question is, you talked about writing a book. Do you have um, anything you want to say about pushbacks that maybe you faced with? Um, you have this idea for the book. You have, you know, maybe the dialogue that you want to create around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. maybe difficulties that you faced actually putting it into... Um, a tangible thing. I would I would say this. Um, academia is really good at making you have a thick skin because you it's a world full of very critical people. Mm-hmm. And so 
you're asking me if I've had roadblocks, basically. Mm-hmm. And the answer is that academia is a roadblock. It's designed for every step along the way for people to tear my work apart, mm-hmm. to, to say this isn't going to work, or you've got to do it differently, and here's how you can do it, and then I've got to go back and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, every step of the process for writing is, and this is really hard to convey to undergraduates, that writing really is a, a long process that requires people to look at it. It's mm-hmm. collaborative. It requires revisions. It requires uh, you, like it's never done. It's a it's always a process. Even when you've published something, there's still more to be done because you've got a conversation and you've got to defend it from critics and mm-hmm. from you know people who mean well and 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 everything in between. Mm-hmm. So. It's hard to kind of pinpoint like when there was a real roadblock in the sense that all of it's a roadblock. But that's a good thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Critiques are very important. I find that like as an art student, if you mm-hmm. don't get critiqued, you just... You're never going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do you stay above the uh, roadblocks, per se? It's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, getting rejected hurts. You know this. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, know I mean sometimes it's it's uh it's it's bad on your mental health um but uh you cherish the the moments when you actually do you know when you when you were successful um and for me like a good outlet is teaching mm-hmm. um because not because the stakes aren't high the stakes are high and I, I really do think it's important but the rewards are much more frequent than my scholarly work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for your students or the listeners? Oh, that's a really big question. Um, yeah, I, I do have one piece of advice, and this doesn't matter what you do. Always have a plan, and always try to see things as far into the future as possible. And I tell, I tell this to undergraduates all the time, too, because a lot of them come to me and say, I want to go to graduate school, even though they don't really know what, and this gets back to my, my story, right? They don't know what that means, actually. See, when students come to me and say they, they want to go to graduate school, it's largely because, and this is being, this is my opinion, but a lot of times professors are the first, like, uh, adults that students meet who have it together, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, I want to be like that. And I totally get that, but there's there's a lot that you're not seeing, right? That a lot of us don't have it together, or you know that we have the same kinds of problems everybody else does. And like I was talking about earlier, graduate school is really really hard, and the rewards aren't nearly what they should be mm-hmm. for for the amount of work, in my opinion. So if you have a goal, like if you have a, if you want to be an artist, or if you want to be a professor. You better have a plan for that, and you better have thought through all of the steps. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow your dreams. I, I'm a firm believer that you, know, you can do anything you want if you set your mind to it, but you have to have a plan. And the reason I say that is because when you start doing the planning process and thinking through all the things that you have to do, it might change your mind to go do something else, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what does having a plan look like to you? Um, for me, having a plan, uh, has to do with being realistic in your expectations. Um, so setting goals that are actually achievable. 
Um, that's really important. I'd say it's important just for your mental health. So you don't, you know, if you if you if you set really high aspirational goals without a plan to get to them, you're going to set yourself up for failure, mm-hmm. um, which is not good for your mental health in the long run, right? So um, yeah, setting achievable goals and having a plan. I, I know they're not very inspirational, but like to me, those are really important things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it makes sense. So you can't just go into something blindly. Right. But I, but I do think though, I think that people, a lot of people go to graduate school blindly. Mm-hmm. Just like, I, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this for a while. Um, I know a lot of people who did that. And some of them succeeded, and that's great. But a lot of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes for all, for all of life. I mean, it's not, it's not just people who want to go to graduate school. It's, it's uh, people who want to start a business or people who want to... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, do performance art or something. They they have to have a plan. And they have to have goals to kind of achieve that. Mm-hmm. That was kind of boring and lame, but that's my. Those are my. Those are my big things. Uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. What do you think that? What like? What's the what's the big takeaway that you've learned from having well now a class and a half for me. Um, and interacting like, with me outside. Like, what what do you think, like, the most important thing that you've learned from taking a class from me? I think something that I've realized is that, like, although it seems like, you know, as a student we have no say, uh-huh. or although, you know, living in the present, like, doesn't feel like it's going to affect anything, that there's a lot to be done when you take action. Mm-hmm. And a lot that's going to be changed. Um, as a result of those actions. As a result of those actions. So personally, um, you know, I always find it pretty hard to, like, I have all these, like, ideas of things I want to do. Yeah. And rarely ever put, like, action behind them 100% to make sure that they are done and that they're done well and that they're done to completion. Yeah. Um, and I found that, like, through taking your class that, you know, there's a beginning of the project and Good. there's also the middle of it that you know, like you have to stay consistent with putting in work. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, even though it's hard and it sucks, you know, um, <laughs> you're going to want to. No, but you're right. And I wanted to, so that's good. I mean, um, I think that especially for creative people like you, I think that you're a creative person and I like to think of myself, even though I, I, I'm, you know, just told you that the, the two things I hope people get are like these rules and stuff. But like, mm-hmm. I think of myself as a creative person, but I think it's important that that especially creative types understand that there's a process to everything, mm-hmm. right? And that you can make up the rules as, as however you see fit to fit your life or what you're trying to accomplish, but that you have to follow a process even if you're creating something. Mm-hmm. And that, that if you follow that process, you'll find that 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 creative process is much more fruitful. Mm-hmm. I think something else that I've been trying to achieve, like, through this podcast, um, well, several things, is, like, sh- making a point that creativity isn't just bound through art. Yeah. That it's, um, I interviewed Cassidy because she uses her voice as a medium to get activism to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, you're a history professor, which most people wouldn't say is creative, but you come up with creative ways to change the classroom, but yeah. also topics that interest students yeah. and whatnot. So yeah. I think that's one of my points. Uh, another thing is like, I have a bad habit of not finishing things, mm-hmm. of um, 
getting an idea, never starting it or never finishing it. Right. And I find that um, working on one episode is an easy thing. Yeah. And I can do that and it will lead to something else. And yeah. if I plan something out, um, I wind up following through with that and get a tangible result in the mm-hmm. end. So. I think that's great. Good. I'm glad. That, I really am glad that you learned that. Um, yeah, that makes me happy. It's so. Uh, so I grew up listening to radio. I actually grew up on country music. So like. There's um, nothing wrong with. There's that. nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. Nothing with wrong with that. that. Um, and my dad and I would listen to like the radio, and um, there's a radio host, uh, B1 Boomer, which okay. is like radio name, and unfortunately he's like died recently yeah but um but so like I was always like I want to be on the radio I want to like talk and to him and whatnot and so now I'm finding that like this has always been kind of like in the making of like a dream that like I've wanted to do and something else that a lot of people don't realize is that it doesn't have to be like 100% perfect yeah to be um like a thing yeah, so that's good. Yeah, so that's like, really that's a really good point. A lot of people get scared to like start writing or start a project because it's like, well, if it's not going to be good, then like, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah. But you know, I do this podcast with like very minimal editing yeah. and whatnot because it's not supposed to be perfect. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's complete. Anyway. Um, no, that's great. Really. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I don't think so, no. This has been really great, though. Okay. Uh, do you want to drop your information on how people can follow or contact you? Sure. So uh, I'm on Twitter, and you can follow me at John Worsencroft, uh, J-O-H-N-W-O-R-S-E-N-C-R-O-F-T. Um, uh, that's my handle. And then um, I'm also, I have a public uh, Instagram uh, account, um, and that's at jworzy. Um, so I, I, I Instagram about food and my dog. Um, and occasionally about uh, teaching, but mostly about food and my dog. So if mm-hmm. you're interested in those kinds of things, uh, check that Instagram account out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Right. Thank you for listening. Hey, lovelies. You just listened to an episode of the Girl Uninspired podcast. Thank you so much for your time and for your support in my journey with this podcast. If you like it, you can follow us on Instagram at the Girl Uninspired Podcast. There's an underscore in between every single word. Um, and if you have any comments, questions, or material, you're more than welcome to message us or email me at CallieKRobbins3 at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-E-R-O-B-B-I-N-S-3 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. Bye.